Good morning. Welcome to Savior. Uh, we are super happy to have you. And if this is your first time, you're coming in at the tail end of our series through the book of Colossians. Uh, this is our sixth look at the book, um, which is more like a letter. It's a letter. Uh, we call it a book, but it's a letter um, between the Apostle Paul uh, and his audience. He's writing to all the believers that were gathered up in a, in a city called Colossae. And, uh, and the, the question that we've been asking is, uh, throughout, as we've been looking at this book throughout the series, is uh, what kind of church does God want us to be? It was, it's specifically, what kind of church did, did uh, God want the Colossians to be? And then, you know, then that kind of trickles down to us on what kind of church God wants any church really to be. Um, because this is, the, this is the letter that I think uh, exemplifies the Apostle Paul's thesis on, uh, on what church is about. See, with, with a lot of the other letters, like with the letter to the Corinthians, um, both the letters to the Corinthians, he's kind of writing to circumstances that were going on at their time, and he's addressing issues and problems that, uh, that had arisen. To the Galatians, he's, he's kind of dealing with the heresy that came up and stuff. To the Colossians, they're doing well. There are uh, influences sprouting up around them that, uh, that he has to warn them about, but there's nothing that he has to rebuke them about. Uh, he's just saying, hey, watch out for these kinds of things around here. But he doesn't have to say, you know, hey, quit, quit being like that, you know, and, uh, and uh, repent of your ways. He doesn't have to say that because this church is doing well. And so he really just gets to talk about what church is about. And he says, continue in this kind of stuff and keep doing what you're doing. And so he, uh, he talks about how, uh, how he prays and how they should pray. He talks about, uh, about the, the message of Jesus, the truth that ought to be taught. He talks about his own personal leadership he talks, uh, and, and how that is to set an example for other leaders. Um, he talks about uh, worship, worshiping Christ and nothing else. Uh, he talks about how relationships should spin out once you, you have your, your sights on Jesus. Um, and he, as, he, as he says all this stuff, everything keeps connecting back to this idea of Jesus, this, this idea that it's all centered on Christ. And by centered, we, really, we don't mean he's just in the middle of it and there are other things around him. We really mean that he's uh, the, the central and sole source and meaning and purpose and goal of everything that's going on with church. So uh, today, as we kind of wrap this up in our, in our sixth look, we're going to get uh, to the final verses in the book, chapter 4, verses 2, till the end of it. Um, but we're going to talk about the mission of the church. See, we, uh, we can have Christ-centered prayer and Christ-centered truth and Christ-centered leadership and Christ-centered worship and Christ-centered relationships, but uh, the, the kind of uh, idea that, that comes out here is the idea of a Christ-centered mission. It's the idea that uh, that all of this is aimed for a cause that we stand for, for a movement that, uh, that we put forward, and it's, it's the mission. Um, the, the word mission seems uh, like such a, like an international foreign kind of thing, you know, like uh, someone who's a missionary, we think, goes off to some uh, less developed country and, uh, and then does it does church work over there to, uh, to bring the gospel to unreached peoples and things. And that is a fine understanding of missions, but uh, that's not the only understanding. The mission is just to save the world. If, if we want to make it sound as corny or campy as, as we can, our mission is to save the world. And it's not saving the world through activism, uh, you know, of, uh, of political action or, or environmental uh, conservation or anything like that. It's, that's not the kind of save the world we're talking about. We, we are specifically speaking of the problem of sin and to redeem the human soul because that will endure for eternity. 
the earth will not. The earth will be done away with, and then there will be a, a, a renewed earth at some point. But, uh, but the human soul, that will endure forever. And that's what we're trying to save. Uh, we're trying to save the world, the people of the world. Now, what do you need to accomplish in your life for you to feel like you've accomplished your mission. See, because when we say mission, uh, it sounds like there's this big Christian mission out there for missionaries to do, but what's the mission of your life? Let's just kind of throw that question out there, right? Um, you, ever, you ever said, like, I just need to do this before I die, and then I'll be a happy, uh, happy man or a happy woman? Right? Like, is, is there something that you need? Like, I need to travel the world. Or I, need to, I need to finish uh, building my own car. Whatever. You know, I need to write a song. I need to get married. I need to have kids. Uh, people have different little, you know, like checklists, uh, th- things to do before they die. And then they'll be happy. That's, that's, that's their mission. And um, you'll, you'll kind of feel like a, a, a certain tension between the Christian mission and your mission. And that will come up when you start realizing you've got to choose one or the other. Now, sometimes you don't have to choose that. If you're a Christian, you could still, like, you know, save up money, buy parts, and eventually build a car. Or you, if you're a Christian, you could still end up writing a song, you know. And, uh, if you're, many Christians get married. Many Christians have children, etc. But do you ever uh, notice that there are times when you feel like you have to choose being a Christian or doing something else, right? You, uh, you go to work, and you have this opportunity where you can talk about Jesus, you can talk about the gospel, you can talk about your faith, but it might make things weird. So now you got to be like, I know I'm supposed to do the mission, but I'd rather not be weird. Because that's kind of like a mission in your life. I want to be socially accepted and, you know, uh, either popular or, or just at least not weird. Maybe you're just tired of being the weird one. And nobody wants to make things awkward at work. You know, oh, if, I, if I bring up Jesus, now this person's never going to talk to me again. So I'll just never bring up Jesus so that we'll always have a relationship so that maybe someday I could bring up Jesus. Which you won't because you don't want to make things awkward. But you start to kind of find out what your mission is, right? The thing that, that, uh, that you protect. You'll go, I'll ditch the gospel. I'll ditch the mission in order to protect this thing. That's the thing that I want. That's the thing that, that I need in order to be satisfied and fulfilled in my life. I don't want people to, uh, to dislike me. I don't want them to, to think uh, that I'm weird. I don't want things to be awkward. I don't want to share the gospel because it'll threaten this. Now fill in that blank there. What will it threaten? What makes you hold back from sharing the gospel? The Apostle Paul, as he's ending this letter, is, gonna, is just going to bring everything back to the mission. See, you have Jesus. You have Christ. And you, if, you've, if you've centered on him, then what was Jesus all about? Well, he was here to save the world. To seek and save the lost is the way that he said it. If that's what he's about, and that's who you're following, that's, you know, he's, he's in the center of you, and what he does is, is what, what you do. Where he's going is where you're going. He's going to save the world. What are you doing? Are you following? Or are you standing still saying, I'll watch you from here and I'll cheer you on, Lord. But I can't go there. It'll be weird. It'll be awkward. Well, here's the Apostle Paul. He's going to talk about the mission. 
And the first thing he's going to do is we're, we're gonna take it in three movements. Uh, he, first, he's going to talk about praying for the mission. He's going to ask the Colossian church to pray for the mission. So praying for the mission will be verses 2 through 4, if you're taking notes. And then as much as he asks about, uh, them to pray for the mission, he also uh, exhorts them to participate in the mission. So you have praying for the mission in verses 2 through 4. Then you have participating in the mission in verses 5 through 6. And then you get to verses 7 through 18. Verses 7 through 18 is Paul and the missionaries. He's just going to greet a bunch of people. He's going to mention a bunch of people. That's Paul and the missionaries. Uh, and by coincidence, that has perpetuated the alliteration of praying for the mission, participating in the mission, and Paul and the missionaries. That was unintentional. I noticed that this morning. All right. So let's start with praying for the mission, verses 2 through 4. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians. He says in verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, does it at all surprise you that the Apostle Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him? In some sense, it's kind of like, well, of course, because he's the Apostle Paul, and so he's going to say, pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and all that kind of stuff. So you kind of expect the religious language to spill out, and all that, uh, you know, all that seems very normal, because he's an apostle, he's writing the Bible, you know, things like that. Um, but maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me, but uh, am I the only one that thinks that the Apostle Paul is like this spiritual giant and anyone he's writing to is just like a whole bunch of spiritual infants. And he's helping them, right? He's the one writing to them saying, like, I, I've got the truth and I've, I've got the word of God. I've got this apostolic authority that Jesus has given exclusively to his 12 disciples and to Paul, the 13th, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles. You have 12 disciples to the tribes of Israel. And then you have the 13th uh, disciple, the 13th apostle um, meant to go and reach the non-Jewish people. So he has this exclusive authority. He has this very special relationship with, uh, with the Lord and a very special commissioning that he's supposed to carry out. So I think of him as a spiritual giant to these spiritual infants. Uh, infants. And, uh, and so when Paul asks for prayer, there's something kind of surprising about it to me because it displays a certain humanness, a vulnerability, a dependence that he has. He has this honest fragility uh, that, uh, that he needs to come ask us ask other believers to pray for him because he knows that the power is not in him. He is not the source of strength. He's not, uh, he's not the source of power. So Paul will pray unceasingly for the Colossians as he talks about in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He'll say stuff like that. But he also knows that he depends on God in prayer. Like, you know, he's praying for the Colossians, yes, but he's, he's, not, he's not something special. He also needs to be prayed for. And if you, if you, uh, if you ask, uh, you know, someone to pray for you, often, you know, what, what do you ask for when you say, can you please pray for me or can you pray for someone I know? What do we end up asking for? Think about this, right? We, we mentioned it in the first sermon, but the things that we ask for is like, pray that I would do well on my test tomorrow. Pray that I would get this job. Pray that I would be healthy Right? Like, we, we kind of pray for these things that, that are, that are um, well, they're notably self-interested. 
And yet Paul, when he says, like, pray for me, pray for me so that I could declare the mystery of Christ, right? His, his, uh, his prayer request is completely different. It's for the salvation of other people. He doesn't seem to be asking for a whole lot. And this is like, uh, you know, this is someone, he's right, he's in prison at this moment when he's writing the letter. He has needs, he has problems, he's got circumstances that are difficult. Life is not great for him at that time. Uh, and there he is, and he could have been like, please pray for me. Pray that, that I would be let out of prison soon so that I can go and do my thing. Right? I'm stuck here in jail. I'm chained to people. He could say, you know, pray that uh, God would protect my health because I'm in prison. Sanitation is not good. You know, I'm exposed to the elements a little bit. I don't, I don't really have a blanket or anything, so it's, I, I'm having a hard time just staying healthy. Or he could be like, I'm in prison. Pray that I wouldn't be sad. Pray that like, my, my feelings wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you know, fall apart. He could, pray, he could ask this kind of stuff, because that's the stuff that we would ask for, is it not? If I were in prison, that's exactly what I'd First, I'd be like, pray that God gets me out of here. Or, while I'm in here, pray that it's not so bad. That's kind of what it is going to turn out as. And yet, Paul wants them to pray that God will open a door for the word. Right? I'm in prison. Pray that God would start saving people in prison. I'm chained to people. They got no choice but to listen. You know, he's just like, let's, let's do this. Let's take hold of this opportunity. Uh, pray that I'd be able to aptly and adequately declare the mystery of Christ to reveal the thing that wasn't known about Jesus before. These people don't know Jesus. It was a mystery to them. I want to reveal it. I want to explain it all. Right? It's, it's one thing to say, uh, please pray for me to preach the word. It's one thing to say that. Please pray for me to preach the word. That's kind of what Paul says. But he, he has a, 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 these first two words in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue. He doesn't just ask them to pray for him, but he says, keep praying. Right? Those, those first two words, I think that's, uh, th- that's a, 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 like a, a thought that kind of haunts me a little bit because when someone asks for, for prayer and I say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, sometimes I'll pray right there on the spot. Sometimes I'll pray when I get home or you know, at, at some other point. But I don't think I could say with, with, with an honest, uh, clear conscience that I continue steadfastly in that. That's a whole different story. You ever feel like you're just praying for the same things over and over? And you go, what's the point? And so you just kind of move on, find something else to pray about? That's weird. Like, the ancient people were able to pray for the same thing every day. The, the people of Israel back in the time of Exodus were enslaved for 400 years. And they would cry out, God said that he heard the the cries of his people, right? They would cry out. That's 400 years. That means people spent their entire lifetimes as slaves praying for deliverance, praying the same prayer. They didn't just go, I prayed for it last Tuesday and nothing happened. So what the heck? God doesn't work, right? But that's like like the the temperament of of, uh, people today. Do we continue steadfastly in prayer? Right? It's not just a request to, he doesn't just say pray for me. He says, keep praying for me. I need it. I, it that's a lifeline. How often do you, do you pray for, for missionaries? How, how often do you pray for evangelists? How often do you pray for preachers and pastors? 
And then not only, the, not only those people, because those are, those are professional Christians in a sense, right? But anyone who's going to share the gospel, if you know someone's going to go tomorrow to, to lunch with a friend and they want to share the gospel, pray for this person, right? We should be praying for God to open doors for us to declare Christ to our relatives, to our friends, to our classmates, to our coworkers. You ever sat in your discipleship group and then people go, is there anything I can pray about for you? And you go, mm, no, not this week. Maybe there should be something that they should be praying for you this week. Maybe there should be someone you're sharing the gospel with. Maybe there should be someone that you're trying to reach. And if there's not, then we got to step back and go, am I even on mission? Am I, am I following Jesus in his mission? Am I centered on him? And he's going on mission, am I? We should be praying for each other in this too. Not just, not just praying, but continuing steadfastly in prayer for this. Right? We're so involved in praying for good health and successful circumstances, and yet neither of those are the mission. Neither of those have to do with what Jesus is doing. If ever we pray for those things, it should be so that we are ready to carry out the mission. Christ-centered prayer is aimed at the Christ-centered mission, which is to reach the lost. Right? That's, that's what we should be praying for constantly for one another. In discipleship group, in, small group, in whatever, whatever context you have, your, your spiritual accountability group, right? You should be praying for one another to reach people with whom you interact in your life, right? Everyone's got their own different context, their own different workplace or school setting or whatever, and, uh, and they got different opportunities to reach different people. Now, being constant in prayer is not only how we, uh, how we beseech God to act, right? But it's also how we protect ourselves against temptation, Right? If you're praying to reach this person with the gospel, it's, it's going uh, it's, it's to add an extra layer of protection that you don't fall into sin with this person you know, and, uh, and go and compromise your integrity and participate in, in something that would, would be contrary to the gospel. <laughs> Jesus commanded his, uh, his disciples in, uh, in Mark 14 uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he told them to keep watch and pray so that they don't fall into temptation. Because continuing steadfastly in prayer is how you protect yourself. It, it, it gives you armor against temptation. Vigilant prayer provides the spiritual fortitude, right? To, to be praying and to be watchful. It, it, it gives you that, uh, that, that layer of defense that you need to face down temptation. And if you, if you think about it, prayer is where you ask for God's strength, yes, right? You ask God to do his will through you, okay? If you don't pray, all you have is your strength. Do you realize that? Anything you do prayerlessly is functioning purely off your human strength. God is not working in it. If you come to church and you serve the body with your giftedness, if you, if you were to you know, be on the band or, or welcoming people or setting up and stuff, or if you're, you know, if, you're on, if, if you're on the different teams that we have, different ways that you could serve, but if you do it prayerlessly, if you do it where, you, where God is not really involved in this, where you don't ask him and invite him in and, and say, take over, let me do this thing, and then you charge it with your energy. You know, if, if, if there's no prayer in it, then all you have is your strength. 
And then we're in a really dangerous situation. If that's where our church goes, if, if that's where we go, if we, if, we, if we proceed prayerlessly, where we act on our own strength instead of the strength of God, we've got, we've got a real problem there. Uh, if, if there's anything you learned about living for Jesus, uh, anything you learned about having a Christ-centered mission, it's that this will not make you popular. Have you noticed that? Or at least it, it, it won't make you popular with the world. Um, you can be like a, I guess a popular Christian, but popular Christians are just popular to other Christians, right? Christian authors, unbelievers don't know who they are, right? Christian bands, not that popular to the world, right? It, it, it doesn't really make you popular with the world. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't give you this, this awesome reputation and stuff. Quite the opposite. Despite the fact that uh, the gospel is, is characterized by love and grace and forgiveness, humility, those are winsome qualities that you would want in any human being. And yet for some reason, because the name of Jesus is involved in it, and because it requires repentance of sin, uh, there, it, the, the whole regard that the world has for the gospel is, you know, it's, it's, it's tainted, it's it's charged with, with anger and, uh, and other upset feelings. You don't win a lot of friends this way. You don't end up being super influential. And it can evoke an enormous amount of hostility. Uh, and for the Apostle Paul, he was, I mean, he's the, the Apostle Paul, spiritual giant in my mind, right? This guy's above reproach. This guy is the example for, for the other believers to follow. He is a model character. And yet, he's in prison, Right? He's thrown into jail. You, you don't win points with the world just because you're a good Christian. We usually look for God to open doors for our, for our professional success. We look for God to open doors for our personal advancement, right? That's like the, the metaphor that I heard a lot growing up. You know, you, you hear it sometimes. You, when God closes a door, he opens a window, right? Yeah, something like that, you know? You hear this, this, you know, oh, God's opening doors for me. And, you know, it's, it's this way of saying that he's kind of helping you move forward in life and get to a new place, right? Nobody says, uh, like, God's opening a door for me when you get, like, fired from a job. Oh, I, I feel like God's opening a door. Nobody, nobody says that when they get a demotion. God's opening a door. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like God closed the door, right? The open door is the... It's, it's the um, the image that we use for something good and positive and move, moving up in life, advancing in rank in some way. And we think God will open doors for us, open doors for us. And never do we think that the door he's opening is a prison door for you to walk through. Never do we think that that's the kind of place that God's going to take us, that the gospel is going to walk us into that kind of a thing. And yet the Apostle Paul was so sold out for Jesus and he was so centered on him, so, so diehard, to go after Christ, that when he's in prison, he's like, I'm in prison, and I got this opportunity to preach here now. Like, it, it never defeated him. Look at what he says in 2 Timothy 2. He's in prison, he's writing, and he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they, may al they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Right? He's like, look, I I'm in chains, but the gospel's not in chains. 
right? They'll, they'll make me stay in this little jail cell, but I'm going to talk and the gospel is going to keep going. They, they can't stop that. And people out there are still spreading the gospel and it's still moving around. Do you notice he's not, he's not like all like down on himself. He's in a, he's in a tough bind. He's in, a, in this, this unpleasant situation. And yet he's like, oh, that's okay. I endure it all. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. All, all those people that are going to come to faith, all those people that are going to be saved, uh, I'm, I'm doing this for them, right? That they may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Like at some point they're going to come to know the gospel. I'm in it for them so that they eventually come to hear and know the gospel. What happened to Paul that created such absolute devotion to the mission? Like, why is that not the driving fire inside every church? Right? Churches want to be big and, and known for their music or known for their social justice movement. Or there are a million things that, that churches want to be known for. They want, they, want to know about how, they want everyone to know how inclusive they are. You know, there are these things that they advertise on, like, this is what our church is about. Paul was not, not like that. He's just saying, I'm about Jesus. I want everyone to know Christ, risen from the dead, right? The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, and that's why I'm suffering. That's, that's why I'm doing this. He has no interest in defining himself by his career or by a political opinion or by some activist, even a human rights movement. He's just, he's not interested in that. The mission of his life is not centered on himself. Which is why no matter what happens to him, it can't defeat him. No matter what happens to him, it can't defeat him. Right? If, if you or I were in prison, wouldn't we think, I'm defeated? Have you ever thought that? I'm defeated. Like, what am I now? You know, if, you, if, if you're in prison, you're like, I'm not a teacher anymore. I'm not a dentist anymore. I'm not a pastor anymore. I'm not a programmer anymore. I'm not an artist anymore. I'm just, I'm, I'm an inmate. Right? You would think uh, they, they, they took away the thing that I was. What am I? I'm defeated. We would think that, that uh, our, whatever uh, was taken away, because that's gone and we don't have that anymore, what, why are we alive? I don't know if you've ever gotten to that point where you say, I don't know why I'm alive. That, that's happened uh, to me a few times in my life. I remember there was a, a nine-month period where I was unemployed. And th there was a, a, a moment where, where I turned to Christine and I, I said, like, if I died, no one would know except you. And it wouldn't be a problem for anyone, not even for you, because it would just alleviate some expenses. You know, spend less on McDonald's. But I make no contribution. Uh, nine months, I was, you know, I was unemployed. And I think I was feeling this way somewhere around the like six month mark where I was just like, what am I doing? It was, I had been a youth pastor previously and I didn't know where I was going to go next. Uh, and that's when I realized like I was kind of just defined by my job. I was, uh, I was planting myself on that. And if you take my job away, then I feel like I'm nothing. You know, if, if, if I had to go and, uh, and work 
in some position that I don't even care for. Let's say I just became a librarian, which would be hilarious because I hate reading. But let's say I just became a librarian. You know, would I have the attitude that Paul has? Would I be like, you know, I'm in a library, but the gospel is not just stuck in a library. You know, it's, it's moving around and I'm doing this for the other. Like I wouldn't have that mentality. I'd be like, I'm in prison, right? <laughs> Pray that God would get me out of here. I would hate that. If we're, you know, if, if, if we have the thing taken, what is it that, that, if it's taken away from you, what is that thing that if it's taken away from you, you'd be like, I don't want to live anymore. I mean, you've been at that point where like you, you like someone and you get rejected by this person or dumped by this person. And then you go, what am I? I don't want to live anymore. Right? You've all been there. It's called puberty. <laughs> right? You've been there. Here's the Apostle Paul. He used to be a Pharisee, which in the religious society of Israel was the, the elite class, right? He was, uh, he was a Pharisee. He had a, he had a PhD in Judaism. And uh, he had a promising political career in the Sanhedrin. He was, he was well-respected. He, uh, he was a leader among leaders, top of his class. Right? He, was, he was the best of his time, greatest among his peers, and he had all of that taken away, every last bit of it, just gone. His education in Pharisaical law became useless. His rank and his position that he worked so hard to gain was gone forever, and for all his intellect and charisma and training and aptitude, for all that stuff that he could do, he ends up on the road making tents in order to, uh, to make money to, to survive. He's just on the road uh, making, sewing together cloth to make a tent, uh, selling that. Then he goes to prison. Uh, he's at times shipwrecked, tortured, chased out of cities, beaten, flogged, all that kind of stuff. And somehow in all of that, he's like, yeah, I'm down. Praise the Lord. Who among us would say that. What kind of psychotic man would say something like that? What, what has ignited this fire inside him? He's like, I'm doing it. I'm living the life that's truly life. I mean, come on. How many of us actually believe that? If we're just, if we're just honest, how many of us look at his life and go, I want that? Or how many of us go, wow, look at his life. Look at his life. And we just kind of step back a little bit just to look at it. But we don't want to touch it. We don't want to participate in it. We don't want to experience it. We just stand back and look at it. And then we, we, we teach Bible study and we say, look at that. Look. Everyone look. Don't get too close. Just, just look. That's what we do. Somehow in all of it, he's just like, this is what life is about. He's so sold out for Jesus. He's so obsessed with them that his own success isn't even ancillary. It's just irrelevant. He doesn't care that he's just making tents for a living. He doesn't care. You know, there was no prestige in that job at the time. Paul didn't, I don't know if there's prestige in it at this time either. I'm not sure. If you're a tent maker, I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to 
put you on blast. But anyway, Paul didn't care that he was tortured and imprisoned. He, he didn't care he was starving or he was poor. He didn't care about that kind of stuff. In Philippians 4, uh, it, uh, he says, like, you know, that's okay. I can, I can do it all. I can endure all of that because of Christ who gives me strength. And he thinks about his education, his training, his position. All of that turned to nothing. It just vanished. It doesn't mean anything. And he doesn't care. He's not bothered by that. He's like, that's fine. In Philippians 3, he's like, all of that, I just consider all that garbage. It's all rubbish. It's all crap compared to knowing Christ. Like, how many of us look at our education? You know, uh, some of us are college educated. Some of us even beyond college and look back at that and go like, yeah, that's garbage. Right? Or how many of us try to use that and advance that and say, that's who I am and that's my career and that's what defines me? All Paul wants to do is be able to point people to Jesus. He wants to preach clearly, to speak as he ought, to exemplify the gospel, even in prison. Right? It doesn't matter what his circumstances were. So he says, Colossians, pray for me that I can do that. Pray that the gospel would be preached. Pray that it would be preached by me. Pray for me to go and declare this mystery. Do you think God answered their prayers? Right? Just get, like, stop and wonder about that. Right? Paul goes, please pray for me that I would declare the gospel. You know, the thing is, Paul was in prison, and he didn't miraculously get out of prison in this little occasion here. He was in prison, and he kind of did his time, and then eventually he was out. So he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't like teleported out of there or anything. I mean, he had other episodes like that in, in, in other moments of his life. But in this one, he's just in prison. He thinks he, he might die, that kind of stuff. You know, he's like, I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. And, uh, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know. And he's just, just pray for me that the gospel will be preached. And we got we to gotta wonder, did God answer that prayer? Because Paul didn't get out of prison. He, he stayed in there. Well, did he preach the gospel? I'll tell you this. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Colossians. He wrote First and Second Timothy. He wrote Titus. He wrote Philemon. Maybe he didn't get to tell a whole bunch of people, but he wrote stuff down, and people are still preaching that today. I mean, that, that time that he was in prison, he's like, pray that I would be able to declare the mystery of Christ. Did he? Yeah, we're still talking about it. I think um, as the years have gone by as a Christian, you know, the, 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 the thing that I get to examine about myself when I'm praying, a little, little seeker, a little principle that I kind of run myself through is um, I ask myself the question, how can I ask God for something that I'm not willing to do? Right? Don't, don't pray for something that you're not willing to do. Right? I always have to be, uh, be ready to, when I, ask God, when I ask God to do something, you know, God, I pray for this person, that you'd be able to you know, preach the gospel or something like that. Whenever I'm going to pray for something, it's got to be something that I'm willing to be the instrument by which God does the thing. You know? God, please uh, help this person who's sick. Now, I've got to be willing to go out there and, and be a source of comfort. You know, God, please, uh, please encourage this person who, who's, who's downhearted. Uh, I've got to be willing to go out there and encourage this person. Right? Never, never ask uh, God to do something that you're not willing to participate in. Right? If, I, if I'm not willing to help someone, why would I ask God to do so? He, he's not my minion. 
right? He's not my henchman. We often pray for God to do what we're unable to do. That's, that's one thing where we say, please help the starving people uh, in that natural disaster that happened in that other country. And that's, that's one thing where we're unable to, uh, to help in, in, uh, in our immediate capacity, right? But uh, we, we can't pray for God to do something we're unwilling to do. That, would, that wouldn't make sense. God, please, you know, take care of this person. And then we do nothing. We, just, we, we don't go out to them, right? We, in those cases, we have to repent. We have to posture our hearts in willingness to be the instruments through which God works. And the, the, my favorite example of this is at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gathers up his 12 disciples and he's like, look, there are a lot of people out there that would come to faith if they heard the gospel. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray that God would send out laborers. And all the disciples were like, okay, we're going to pray for that. And Jesus says, yeah, pray that God would send out laborers. So they all get together. They have this prayer meeting. They, you know, God, send out laborers. Send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, right? We want people to be saved. Jesus is like, good, let's pray for them. And they pray for that. That's the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, the very first verses, he's like, hey, come here. And he grabs 12 and he's like, now go and harvest. And you just see them like, oh, 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 you got me, right? Because they've been praying for this. They've been saying, like, God, send out laborers. And Jesus is like, I have an idea. Go and labor. And what if they're like, no, 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 I don't want that. That, that. that doesn't make any sense, right? But Jesus is like, you were praying for it, right? You're praying God's will to be done. Do you want to carry out God's will? Boy, do I have an offer for you. And here are these guys, and they're like, okay. Okay, well, what's it going to take? And Jesus is like, yeah, just go two by two. Don't take anything with you. Just trust that someone's going to take you into their home and house you and feed you, and they're going to like what you have to say. How terrifying that must be. Jesus didn't let his disciples just pray for God to work while they sit back and chill and do their own thing and advance their careers and all that kind of stuff, right? They had to participate in the mission, not just pray for the mission. And that kind of brings you to verses 5 and 6, which is about participating in the mission. It's one thing where Paul asked them, to, uh, asked the Colossians to pray for the mission. Now he asked them to participate. Verse 5, it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders meaning people that don't go to church, people that don't believe in Jesus, unbelievers, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Two very simple verses. And look, as much as you pray for the mission, you have to be on the mission. You have to participate in the mission, right? This, this uh, affects your perspective even of unbelievers. If you, uh, you, we have to compare this 2,000 year gap. See, when you go 2,000 years ago to when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossians, the original audience, uh, they knew that they had been given the fullness of Christ. They had the truth. Uh, they had Jesus who was head over every power and authority, as it says in chapter 2, verse 10, right? They knew they had uh, the, the, the true uh, understanding of reality. They knew they had it. And so they had this outlook as though outsiders, as unbelievers, uh, were like these deprived, underprivileged, unenlightened people. There was like an arrogance that, uh, that was very easily uh, exhibited in, in believers because they, they just felt like people that are on the outside, they don't understand, and so they don't know what we know. 
even though uh, the church was persecuted, right? There was outright persecution of Christians. Christians saw outsiders as ignorant. Which is why, like, sometimes in, in, in this letter even, Paul's like, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone, uh, you know, look down on you, that kind of thing. You know, don't let anyone exclude you. Um, because that was like the, the mentality that would happen when, when a group thought that they, they knew the truth, they would become very, uh, like, arrogant and, and, and dismissive and, and uh, uh, condescending toward people that were outside the group. They oftentimes looked down on them, judged them, regarded them poorly for not knowing the truth. But then, you, like, 2,000 years later, we get to, uh, to America, the United States of America, right? Where the gospel has had its day. It helped plant this nation and, and make it a Judeo-Christian society in its, uh, in, in its beginnings. And then time has gone on, much like in the, in the other uh, European nations where the gospel has been there and then it's kind of run a certain course and then people uh, feel like they've outgrown it. Society thinks that it, it's kind of moved past this antiquated message, this old-fashioned uh, mythology. And so uh, today you have the opposite problem where the gospel doesn't seem like we have the truth and everyone outside is, is so ignorant. It, it doesn't feel like that at all. Today it's like the gospel is regarded as this unintelligent, outdated, irrational way of thinking or not thinking. It's, it's the opposite of thinking is the way that the world will look at it. Right? And so people are afraid to talk about Jesus because we're afraid people will think we are unintelligent and outdated and irrational. And, th and it's the opposite of the original audience. The original, you know, the Colossians, they were persecuted when they spoke. And yet, th they knew they had the truth and they looked down on everyone else. Well, in our society, we have complete freedom of religion. We have complete freedom of speech. No persecution. And yet, we feel un unequipped and uninformed in order to speak. Right? Tell someone the gospel. Oh, I don't know what to say. There's not the sense of we have the truth and they don't know. There's a sense of, oh, but what if they have questions and I don't have answers and this, this huge spiritual insecurity comes up and uh, I guarantee that uh, that fear doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. We have, we have all this freedom and we just keep our heads down. We have all this opportunity and we just... We just try to skate by those opportunities unnoticed, right? It, it feels as though today the Christian church, the, 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 the people in church, you know, we just try to be nice and we try not to talk about religion, hoping someday, somehow we can maybe, uh, maybe if someone asks us about our church and goes, can I come? Then we'll be like, oh yeah, okay. But we don't, we don't we initiate those. We don't, we don't start a whole lot of those conversations. We, you know, we think maybe someday we might weakly or, or timidly, shyly, very carefully invite someone to church. Maybe. Or, th you know, that, that might not even be the plan. Maybe we just hope we can get through the years of knowing them without making Jesus look bad. It's like that's what the mission is for a bunch of churchgoers now. It's where they don't invite people to church. They don't talk about Jesus. They don't, they don't share the gospel. Instead, they just try not to mess up. They try not to look bad in front of the world, right? So I'm not going to cuss and I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to, etc. You know, they, they just set up these things so that no one thinks bad of Jesus. 
That's a terrible like marketing campaign, right? That's, that's a hard that's a hard sell to try to make something known. There's a guy that walks around my neighborhood, uh, and he uh, he works for this pizzeria, and he has these coupons. He comes up to the door, and uh, he talks to me uh, like every year, and I end up uh, just having this long conversation with him. Now imagine if he just came to my door, he said hi, and I said hi, and he, but then he just didn't want to mess up. He just didn't say anything wrong. He didn't cuss. He didn't drink. He didn't do anything. And then he just leaves, and he hopes someday I'll ask if he works at a pizzeria. And then maybe he'll be like, oh, yeah, I do. And then I go, can I come to this pizzeria? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's a good pizzeria, you know? Like, that would be ridiculous. That's not going to sell anything, right? It's not going to advance any. It's not going to move the, the, the good news of his pizzeria forward. It's not going to happen. Just think about how Christians think, oh, as long as I don't mess up, I'm on mission. You're not on mission. You're playing defense the whole time, and you're not accomplishing a thing. Right? The Apostle Paul was on the same mission that Jesus was on, which is save the world. And save the world doesn't mean, oh, just don't hurt anyone. It means go out and save them. Don't upset anyone. No, it's go out and save them. Right? That, that's the idea. I don't know how we, we get so tricked into this. Right? We think our mission is just don't do something stupid. Don't make people hate Christians. Don't make people hate Christ. That's a lousy way to live, right? Just, just try living your life and your goal is not to disappoint anyone. That's a lousy way to live, right? Stand for something. Let them know what's important to you, what you, what you stand for. Don't be tricked. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, right? Walk in wisdom. And like when, when Paul says, like, go and engage the world and, and let them know the gospel and stuff, he's not saying be a jerk. He's not saying be insensitive and stuff. He says walk in wisdom toward outsiders, right? Don't feel better than them because they don't know what you know. Don't feel better than them for that. And don't feel less than them simply because you believe in Jesus and they think that that's silly. Don't feel better than them. Don't feel less than them. Just know that, that you're going to go out there and, and share the gospel and do what you can. Blend wisdom with urgency. You need to have both. Right? Take hold of every opportunity to point someone to Jesus actively, not passively, not by just not looking bad as a Christian, but actively pointing someone to Jesus and saying, come and, come and see. Find out about, about this man Jesus. Right? Maybe you don't have all the answers to their questions. Fine. But you can say that. You can say, I don't have all the answers, right? It, it, like, I think it's silly when people ask questions to, uh, you know, to a bunch of churchgoers, but then dodge leadership. You know, like, uh, if I had a physics question, I wouldn't go up to all the freshmen that are physics majors and be like, hey, tell me about physics. And they're like, ask my professor. No, 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 I'd rather ask you. You know, because nah, I want to see if you know your stuff. And if, if I don't like their answer, be like, ah, physics isn't real walk away. That doesn't make any sense, right? It's okay if you feel like you don't know the answer. If you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm just like a first year in this. I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm young in the faith. Talk to someone who knows. Point to someone who knows, and that's fine. You're allowed to say you don't know. You're allowed to say you don't know, but you, you, you can definitely tell when someone like, is dodging the conversations with someone who might know, you know that they're not really in it to find out answers. Don't feel threatened. Don't, don't feel uh, fearful or isolated. You know, the fears in your mind 
about like, what if, what if they ask questions that I don't have the answers to? Those fears don't come from the Holy Spirit. You have the courage to, to, you can have the courage to speak openly and invite someone to church and mention you pray for them or just say that you're a Christian. You, you can do that. You can do that. And nobody gets mad at you for just, you know, if you say you want to come to church, if they say no, you're like, okay. They don't walk away like, man, why did he ask me that? You know what I mean? Like, they'll be all right. They'll get over it. And if, if you keep asking, if you're like, will you come to church? They say no. Why not? Th- then maybe they'll, they'll get a little upset, right? But if you say, okay, maybe next time. But and if, if, if you ask every five minutes, that's going to get irritating. But just walk in wisdom, right? Like, b- be thoughtful about this. If you're a Christian, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Christian or not, and no matter what you're talking about, it doesn't even have to be sharing the gospel, uh, you can say anything to anybody if you speak with grace and you speak with salt and you speak with certainty, which is what the Apostle Paul tells you to do here. He says, let your speech always be gracious, right? Speak with grace. That means being motivated by the best interests of your hearer, right? That's grace, undeserved goodness that you're pouring out on someone. You're, you're interested in something good for them, not for you. It's not for you to gain something bad. You're, you're, you're speaking with grace. You're giving something, right? When, when you're interested in your hearer, not yourself, the, the hearer will pick up on that. Speak with salt, which... Today, like, that got, that got all turned up weird, you know? Ah, oh, he's so salty. You know, like, that's, uh, that means that he's angry or rude or, you know, like, they're, they're, like, upset feelings and stuff. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. You know, he, when he says, uh, let your speech be seasoned with salt, the opposite of salt at that time, uh, like, a, a salt flavor, a salty flavor, was bland. So when he's saying seasoned with salt, he's saying, like, be interesting or relevant or funny or, you know, things like that. Not everyone's, like, hilarious and stuff fine you know not not everyone is uh, is like super articulate and all that kind of stuff but you can at least be sincere it's always interesting to listen to someone who's sincere right just seasoned with salt not bland not boring if you walk up with some polished speech you know you walk up and like hey you want to come to church because i know these four spiritual laws that i need you to know number one and you just go off like that don't do that, right? Speak with grace, speak with salt, speak with certainty. Speak with certainty, meaning uh, you should know why you believe what you believe. You don't know everything. You, you don't know all the answers and stuff. You might not have all the apologetics down and all the science and all that stuff, but you know the message of forgiveness, right? If you're a Christian, that's the thing you know. You can tell someone who you were before, and then you can tell someone what Jesus did on the cross, and then you can say how that has affected your life. Right? Uh, whether, whether they believe, I mean, key in on this, okay? Whether or not a person believes the gospel you share with them is not up to you. But whether or not you share it with them is. Do you understand the part that you're accountable for? We think, I, I don't want to share because the person won't believe. And we think that's the thing that we're going to be measured on. God says, go tell the world. He doesn't say, go tell the people who you think will listen. He says, go tell the world. 
Now, just look at these, these verses, right? Verses 2 through 6. It's five small verses. And as an observation, do you see how these five verses sum up the ideas that have been given throughout this whole book? Right? Just when you're centered on Christ, it erupts in the mission. Look, Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for him to have an opportunity to preach. That's Christ-centered prayer. Right? Paul wants to preach not morals and clever philosophies. He wants to preach the word. That's Christ-centered truth. Paul says he wants to make it clear, which is how he ought to speak, meaning that's the example I have to set. That's Christ-centered leadership. Right? Paul says his preaching and his clear example point people not to mysticism or some kind of weird vision or supernatural experience, but it points them to Christ. That's Christ-centered worship. Paul expects the Colossians to walk in wisdom so they live blamelessly even with outsiders, right? To be able to have something to say because people know that, that they're there for their benefit. That's Christ-centered relationships. All of this is intended to make the best use of the time, gracious, seasoned with salt, answering each person to show them Christ. That's a Christ-centered mission. The Apostle Paul is saying if you center on Christ, you'll end up going where he's going. Jesus is going on mission. Are you? Well, he, he ends the letter with uh, verses 7 through 18, and that's Paul and the missionaries. I'll read it to you all at once, and then we'll, we'll just kind of wrap up our thoughts. But it starts in verse 7 with uh, Tychicus is going to be my best attempt, okay? Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, who you'll hear mentioned in the book of Philemon, uh, with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of, of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, meaning these are the only Jewish guys that I work with, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas, by the way, ends up abandoning Paul because he falls in love with the world. But verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the, uh, the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. What letter is that? I have no idea. Nobody knows what letter that is. It's like the deleted scenes from the Bible. <laughs> Verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And then verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Look, I know this is the back end of the letter. Nobody thinks about that. I'm not going to pretend to make a larger point of it than it is. Uh, I'll say this, though. It does reveal that Paul's ministry was a team effort, doesn't it? Because the mission is not a one-person mission. Paul doesn't take all the credit just because he's an apostle, right? He names a bunch of people as equals. 
And just look at the list of names, right? One of them, Onesimus, he's a slave. Two of them are authors of the Gospels, Mark and Luke. And he's just naming them in the same list as equals. I love that Paul inspired love and loyalty. It's my favorite thing about him. It's the thing I've always tried to imitate. It's, you know, where he, where he, he never just works alone. He's not this, this, this lone ranger kind of guy. He always gathers a group of people and says, let's do this. Come on. Jump on the train. Let's go. Right? You have Tychicus and Onesimus and this Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and for now Demas and Nympha and Laodiceans. And of course, you even have the Colossians. He's not a lone warrior. He's not embattled and embittered by himself. He's a marshal that recruits and rallies people to a worthy cause. And he wouldn't have been able to accomplish much had he been alone without help. Such is the nature of saving the world. And Paul was somehow able to gather together a slave, a doctor, some Jews, some Gentiles, and people he never met in, in Colossae, and put them all together and say, we all belong together. And everyone says, yeah, we all, we all do. And you look at this list of names, it tells us that Paul was serious about his mission as God expects us to be. Right? No barriers, no dividers, just a longing to see people fall in love with Jesus. And when they do, no matter where they come from, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, when they come to Jesus, their family. That's the mission. What kind of church does God want us to be? A Christ-centered church. We took six looks at this book and we mentioned Christ-centered prayer, Christ-centered truth, Christ-centered leadership, Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered relationships, Christ-centered mission. And if that sounds like six different items on a checklist that you got to do in order to have a good church, something is wrong. These are six outcomes, six results. So you can use them as six different ways to examine your church's health, but the one thing to examine for is whether or not it is Christ-centered. Not does it have a Christ-centered mission, does it have Christ-centered teaching, and does it have, Christ, you know, is it centered on Christ? Is that the driving passion? Is everyone just all in for Jesus? Or do they come to church because there's good music, there's great snacks, there's a, you know, I love the community, all that kind of stuff. Those are good reasons, but those, honestly, those are fringe benefits to what church is about. You come to church, what do you encounter at church that you don't encounter in the world? Jesus. Right out in the world, you can have donuts and coffee. And you can go hang out and, you know, go bowling with friends and stuff. The church does that kind of stuff, and you can do that outside of church too. But here is where you have this dedicated moment where you just put your eyes on Jesus. Is he at the center? Is he at the center of our lives such that he would be naturally at the center of our church? If, if Christ doesn't show up, in, in those six things, prayer, truth, leadership, worship, relationships, missions, if, it doesn't, if he doesn't show up in, in, in those things, we're not missing one of the six items. We're off-center. Right? If you feel like, oh, you got these six things, but then uh, they're, not they're not all necessarily Christ-centered. The whole thing is off-center. It's an imitation. God wants us to be a Christ-centered church. And when you're Christ-centered, these are six outcomes. So then take a good look at who we are and what we're doing. See how we pray. See what we teach. 
See what we call leadership. See what we worship or whom we worship. See how we do relationship. See what is our mission. The way we've been, we've been saying it here in this, in, in this local congregation is our church wants to point people to the Savior and we want to be his community. We want to center on Christ because we are his people. It's one thing if you want your church to be known for its music, its fellowship, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's not us. We want you to know Jesus and be part of his people. He is the source and meaning and purpose and goal of everything that we are and everything we do. He is our identity and our calling and our destiny. So let him be our aim and our mark and our target and our center that we would be a Christ-centered people who form a Christ-centered church. If that's your prayer, say amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us by way of Paul writing to the Colossian church. God, help it to, to gauge where we're at and to help us course correct if in any way we're, we're moving off course. God, we pray that this would be a Christ-centered church where Jesus is the central and sole passion of our hearts, the source and meaning and purpose and goal, the aim, the target, our identity, our calling, our destiny. God, we can get so caught up in all sorts of theological issues. We can, we can get caught up in in churchianity more than Christianity. And pray that here in this place, that would not be so. May Jesus be center stage and the bright light that we shine to the world around us. God, we pray that in our prayers and in the truth that we teach, in the examples that we set with our leadership, in the manner in which we worship, in the way we conduct our relationships, in all those ways, and in more, we pray that we would be on mission to do what Christ was doing, which is nothing less than save the world. God, we don't want our church to be known as just a great place to make friends, a great place to raise your kids with moral principles, a great place to just find community and a and people to talk to. We want people to come here and know that they will meet Jesus and they'll be part of his people. Make that true of us, Lord. May we continue steadfastly in this to pray that you would invade this place and imbue it with power, that Christ would be seen here. And pray for every man and woman, every boy and girl walks through our doors. Lord, don't just lift up their spirits and make them feel good. Transform them, redirect them, and set them on course to go on mission and reach the people in their lives that they meet at school or at work or at home or in whatever context, that people would know Christ and be invited into his people. May we trust in you, Christ our Savior. Be your community, be your people, that you'd be honored in this place. 
All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.